We'll be reading from Ephesians uh, chapter 1. I'll begin and we'll focus on verses uh, 13 and 14. I'll begin in, in verse 11 to provide some context for us. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray once more and ask his blessing on this time. Our great and mighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We confess that we are but creatures and sinful creatures at that, and that without your grace we have blind eyes that cannot see, deaf ears that cannot hear, mute tongues that will not sing your praise. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, that you would unstop our ears to hear a word out of your word that you would loosen our tongues to sing your praise. And it is in the name of Christ that we ask this. Amen. Now, I'm sure for a lot of people here, maybe you don't write letters too often anymore, or maybe you used to at some point in time in our day of texting and phone calls and emails. Handwritten letters aren't that frequent of a thing, but I'm I'm sure some of you at some point in time may have done that. I've written a lot of letters um, in my own day. My fiance and I, we'd like to write letters back and forth sometimes. I remember in college, actually, I would correspond while I was away from home by letter with my younger sister. Uh, she loved writing letters for a number of reasons. They're, they're more meaningful. You get to see somebody's handwriting and know they were really thoughtful about what they were going to say. For my younger sister, it was also a form of an art project, really. She loved um, drawings in the corner and the way she would do the calligraphy and different color pens and things like that. And, and I, I always enjoyed getting the letters from her in the mail. They were very aesthetically appealing. And one of the things that she would always do is close the envelope with a wax seal that had her initial on it. So she had this little wax, and she'd she'd pour it on the page where the envelope closes and then press down on the seal, and then it would dry, and it would seal the letter. And I would get those letters in the mail, and I knew it was a very distinctive feature of letters from my sister was that wax seal that had her initial on the back of that letter. And... There's a sense in which in the Christian life, we also have that wax seal on us. We, too, have a seal. But it's not just any person who has put a seal on us. It is God himself who puts his seal on us. And it's not just a piece of wax or tape or some other kind of thing that you would close up a letter with that God puts on us. No, God puts himself on us. He seals us with his Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit of God who seals us until the day of redemption. And that's what I'd like us to look at this morning. What Paul wants to communicate in this passage about what does it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
So there's four things I'd like us to consider this morning from this passage. First of all is who the seal is. Second of all, what the seal does. Thirdly, how we are sealed. And fourthly, why we are sealed. Or to remember that a little better, that's the who, the what, the how, and the why of being sealed by God's Holy Spirit. So first, let's consider this who of the seal of the Spirit. Now, in this passage, there were a lot of different things that we read, particularly, particularly in verses 13 and 14. And there's, there's a lot that's going on in those verses. But grammatically speaking, the main idea is being sealed. The main verb of the Greek of the passage is that word sealed. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, everything is leading up to that point. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. They were sealed. And now as Paul writes this letter, he's he's writing on a piece of parchment, and he would have rolled it up into a scroll, and it would have been delivered that way to the church of Ephesus. And it's quite possible that he may have even put a wax seal on this letter. We don't know that for sure, but... It was a very common practice in the ancient world to seal documents with some kind of wax seal. His readers certainly would have understood what Paul meant by being sealed. Now, seals do a number of things. For one, they're they're a form of a guarantee. They're, They're an authentication. They guarantee, when you see the seal... When Paul's readers, they saw a seal on the letter, that seal guaranteed, this is from the person it says it's from. There was a unique kind of seal that a person could put a stamp on there and say, this was from me. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. This thing that you are opening is authentic. So to return to the earlier letter illustration, my sister, I knew that it was her letter from a variety of different things, but one of those distinctive factors was that it was her initial on that letter, and there was only one person I knew who sent me letters with that initial on it, and that was my sister. It was a form of saying, this is from her. Now, seals also do another thing. Seals preserve. They protect. A seal kept that scroll in the ancient world closed. It kept it from unraveling. It kept the contents from inside being being uh, uh, dusty and, and scuffed and marred and that kind of thing, much in the same way that, say, if you were to put a wax seal on a modern envelope, what does that do? That envelope closes. It keeps it closed so that the contents of the letter are safe. They're protected. It's a barrier between it and the outside world. And that is what God does to us. When the Bible says that we have been sealed by God, it means those same things. It means that God has put his promise on us, a guarantee, an authentication, a way of saying, this one is mine. This belongs to me. This is my adopted child And I love him. I love her. They are mine. And there is no mistaking that. There's also a sense in which God putting his seal on us, it is a way of preserving us, of protecting us. If you um, think to the book of Revelation in chapter 7, it talks about this sort of 
mysterious, sometimes almost confusing, 144,000. And we, of course, don't have time to get into the, the symbolism behind that number. But one of the most important ideas in there is the fact that these people are sealed. The people of God are sealed with the seal of God. And in context, what that means is that they are protected on the day of judgment, that they are preserved, that when God brings his kingdom to bear on earth in its fullness and Christ comes as a conquering king, a rider on a white horse, he comes in judgment except on those who have a seal. They are, like the contents of that letter, protected by that seal. But now, Paul's, Paul's readers, they would have understood all of this. They know the idea of a seal. They understand these kinds of basic concepts. But there's something unique that he does here. There's something different. Because what Paul says here is, one, there's not just a letter being sealed. These are people who are being sealed. And what they are sealed with is not wax. It's not some Roman emblem. No, they are sealed by the Holy Spirit, God himself. God puts himself on his people in the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the very third person of the Trinity living within us. When God saves a person, when he makes them his own, he doesn't leave them alone. There's no such thing as lone wolf Christianity. There's no such thing as just regular old converts who, who believe in Jesus. You know, um, some decades ago, there was a popular idea of that, you know, you could accept Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. So you could, he could save you, but maybe he wasn't Lord of your life. That's not how the Christian life works. Uh, I'm sorry, there's no such thing as accepting Christ as Savior, but not as Lord, because he won't let you just accept him as Savior. He is going to come, and he is going to indwell you through the person of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence within us so that we become walking, living, breathing temples of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.16. You, the people of God, being sealed with the Spirit means you are indwelt by God himself. Representatives, dwelling places of God, breathing, walking, going out all into the world as as agents of God, representatives of God, bearing his seal. But now this also means that when it comes to not just our authentication, our our, our our promise of being God's, it also means that the preservation aspect of his seal, it's all God. It's not us, it's God. I think one of the greatest struggles of the Christian life, one of the most difficult things is, is, the, end, is the battle with indwelling sin. See, God may save us, he may free us from the power of sin, from the reign of sin, but the fact of the matter is that we all still have sin dwelling within us, and sometimes it can be very, very disheartening. Paul in Romans chapter 7 cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? from this body of death. He senses within himself there's this struggle. He does the things that he does not want to do, but the things that he does want to do, he does not do them. Every Christian knows this feeling, this sense of inward struggle, this sense of I want to live a godly life, and yet I don't do the things that I want to do. 
And it seems like sin so often has the power. It seems like sin so often takes over. There's times when we can despair. There's times when we can be fraught. There's times when we doubt. We all go through difficult circumstances in life when it seems like, God, where are you? You aren't, are you even here? Are you even listening to me? Are my prayers just bouncing off the ceiling? The Christian life is a hard life because it is a life of suffering. It is a life of struggle. It is a life of warfare. And brothers and sisters, if it were up to us, we would have no hope of preserving to the end. The only thing that preserves you to the end of the Christian life, the only way that you can persevere as a child of God is because of the wonderful promise of the seal of God and that seal being God himself. You cannot have a stronger seal than God. He who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, whose promises are all yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, who preserves us to the end by his mighty power, by his seal, who is not a what, but a who, his Holy Spirit. Now, that's the who of our seal. But the second question then we want to ask is, what does this seal do? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us? What does this seal actually practically do in our day-to-day lives? Or maybe you could even ask this question another way. If that is the precious seal of God, the Holy Spirit himself, how do I know that I have this seal? How do I know that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within me and sealing me until the day of redemption? Now, to answer that question, look back at verse 4 of this passage, where we read that God shows us in him that is in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, God does not come into the life of a Christian just to indwell a Christian by the Spirit. No, he comes to change us. And the way that he comes to change us is by making us more holy and blameless before him. He makes us holy by the power of his Holy Spirit. The most basic way that that happens is simply by working up in us love. Love. Love for God. Love for neighbor. The first fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 and that wonderful list of all the fruit of the Spirit, all the things that the Spirit works up in us. It is no mistake, it is no coincidence that the very first item listed in the fruit of the Spirit is love. What are the two great commandments? But to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you know that you have the fruit of the Spirit? How do you know that the Spirit is dwelling within you, that you have been sealed by God? It's a simple answer. Do you love God and do you love neighbor? Now, I don't think I need to tell this room of, of, of people that the word love is often abused, that it is twisted and distorted by our culture today. Most of the time when you hear the word love used, you hear it used in a way that says, well, it's this warm, kind of fuzzy feeling that, that wells up inside of you, and, and it has the final word. So whatever I feel that warm, fuzzy feeling toward, well, then that's what I ought to be feeling it toward. And it's, I am the determiner of what is good love, what is right love, and what it means to love properly. But that's not the view of Scripture. The view of Scripture is that we do not determine love. God determines love. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 5, says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Not just any love, but the love of God. It is God's love. It is the love that comes from him. It is the love that is defined by him. It is the love that looks toward him above all, that loves him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as a consequence, looks to his images and loves them just as one loves oneself. It is a love for God and neighbor. It is a love that desires to keep the commandments of this God. You cannot love God if you do not keep his commandments. Uh, To the children in the room, if your parents tell you to do something and you don't go and do it, you know, I know, they know that that shows you're not being very loving to them in that moment. If they ask you to do something and you disobey, you know that you're not really loving your parents in that moment. It's impossible to love someone in authority over you if you're not doing what they say. And in the same way, we cannot love God if we do not do what he commands. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So how do you know if you have the seal of God upon you? Do you love God and do you love neighbor? I don't mean perfectly. Nobody loves perfectly in this life. There's no such thing as perfect love in a broken, fallen, sinful, cursed world. But do you truly love God? Do you truly love your neighbor as yourself? And I don't even mean a a vibrant, uh, big, robust, hearty love. Sometimes we can get so caught up in, in looking to some of the great saints of the past and think, I'm not there yet. I don't love like that. Maybe I'm, I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'll never be like that. Brothers and sisters, that's not the question that we need to be asking. The question is, do you really, truly love God and love your neighbor as yourself? Are the embers there? Do you have that glowing coal of love in your heart? If you do, that is a sign that the Holy Spirit lives within you, that God has put his seal on you. And take heart, because God changes those whom he seals. The Holy Spirit works holiness in the lives of those whom he seals, and he will bring up and fan into flame that love within you. So we've seen the who of the seal, we've seen the what of the seal, but now the question before us is the how of the seal. This is another question that the text answers for us. How do I get this seal? How do I acquire the seal of the Holy Spirit? And once again, we see from our text that there is a twofold answer. It is hearing and believing. Hearing and believing. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is radically counterintuitive in a culture like ours today. We live in a very visual world. We are surrounded by billboards and television and smartphones and all kinds of visual stimuli that are bombarding us, that are, that are plaguing us all the time and trying to vie for our attention. It's a, we, we are a visual culture. We are an image-based culture. That's just the reality of it. And even if you try to 
go off and escape technology and get out of the city and go up to, say, the mountains of North Georgia, maybe go take a little visit to Dahlonega or something. So often we go to these places and we think, oh, it's the perfect photo op or what a scenic place. We're, we're so consumed by the visual, by what we can see. And in this world of the visual, God comes in and he says, here's how I work, hearing. That ordinary mundane hearing of the proclamation of the word of God. Why is it that um, so often in, in Protestant churches, we, we see very simple, plain uh, centers for worship? You don't see all these magnificent pieces of art and, and things like that. In our space this morning, we have white walls with a basic background behind me. Why don't Why don't we have all of these pictures and stimuli and icons and things like that. Well, the reason is because of how God has promised to work in the lives of his people. And the way that he promises to work is through that ordinary mundane means of hearing, of hearing the message of the gospel proclaimed Sunday after Sunday, week after week, day after day. God, he changes lives He builds his church, not through the big, the bold, the impressive, the beautiful, but through the ordinary, mundane hearing of the word. Now, it doesn't stop there just at hearing. There's something that must come along with the hearing. It's not as if just yelling the message of the gospel is going to make people blessed and make them saved and make them grow. No, there's something else that comes along with it, and that is believing. When you heard the word of truth, And believed in him, Paul says, you were sealed. How were you sealed? You heard and you believed. It's not just a matter of hearing. It's not you saw and then you believed. No, you heard and then you believed. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking, oh, Paul here is talking about just that initial moment of salvation. Oh, he's talking about when I first got saved. And that's true. Make no mistake about that. How are people saved? What is the consistent message of the Bible? The consistent message of Scripture is that people are saved by hearing a proclamation of the gospel and having faith. The person believing, having faith within themselves in the message of the gospel, in the Christ who is proclaimed in the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. Because the way we begin is the way we continue. The first step is only the initial stage in an entire lifetime of hearing and believing. Every single Sunday, when you hear and believe, God not only keeps his seal upon you, but the Holy Spirit uses that to work up within you. Love for God, love for neighbor, making you like Christ, growing you into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. And it is through that means that you will be preserved by God through the Christian life and in the day of judgment. Have you ever wondered why it is that Christians spend so much time sitting under preaching and teaching? Why is it that Sunday after Sunday, week after week, you come here, you sit in your chair, and you sit through a 30-minute or longer sermon? 
Why do we do that? Why do pastors spend hours upon hours upon hours every single week studying a passage, preparing a sermon, crafting it, going through it, making sure that it's ready to be delivered? Why do we do this? We do this not just because we're brains on a stick who enjoy hearing and learning. We do this because there is a means that God has promised he will work through to work faith and love in his people. And that is through the means of the proclamation of the message of the gospel, that salvation is found in no other name under heaven except the name of Jesus Christ, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That is why you are here. And brothers and sisters, when you come to worship, come expectantly, come excited. You're not just coming to hear a lecture. You're not just coming to to learn something new. What you're doing when you sit down in that chair on Sunday is you are sitting under the means by which God has promised he will grow his people and he will work in the lives of his people and he will stir up love within them and seal them until the day of redemption. So come expectantly, come attentively, talk about the sermon, meditate on the sermon, and be encouraged by it, brothers and sisters. Now that's so far then the who, the what, and the how of the seal. And now lastly, we need to ask the question, the why. Why does God seal us? Why does he put his Holy Spirit upon us? Did he have to do that? What's the whole point in this? The answer is back in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In context, what has Paul been talking about? He's been talking about our inheritance. This isn't a physical inheritance. This isn't like when your your parents or your grandparents pass away and they leave you money in a house and other kinds of things. No, this is a spiritual inheritance. It's an inheritance that Paul's been expounding on the entire time up to this point. If you look back at verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. He adopts us as children by grace through the one who is son by nature. Verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 10, we are united to Christ to whom all things in heaven and on earth will one day be united. Verse 11, yes, we've obtained an inheritance. There's a spiritual inheritance that God has laid up for us in the heavenly places that he even now is beginning to pour out upon us. And the apostle says that we have been sealed as a guarantee of that inheritance. Now, that word translated guarantee here is an interesting word. It has the basic idea of a down payment. So you think about, for instance, when you buy a house, assuming that you can't pay cash on a house, most people, most of us will, will put a down payment on a house. And, and what's the point of that down payment? It's, it's, it's a form of a promise. It's a guarantee. It's, it's saying to the bank or whoever the lender is, here is the first installment of the total payment that I'm going to give you for this house. It shows, yes, I'm capable of paying this. Here's the beginnings of that. The rest is yet to come. And in the same way, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us in our lives. God, in the life to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, 
that world, that life will be characterized by being filled with the Spirit, by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, filling us with love, making us love God as we never thought we would ever be able to love him before, love neighbor as we never even imagined we would love our neighbors, by the Spirit turning our eyes to Jesus, seeing Jesus, and through Jesus Christ, seeing, yes, God himself. It is a life characterized by the Spirit, a life characterized by adopted sonship, by all of the blessings that Paul uh, lays out for us in Ephesians chapter 1. And what he is saying is that the Spirit, as he seals us, he is a down payment in the here and now upon the fuller payment yet to come. We begin our inheritance now, and that Spirit guarantees that we will receive the rest in the life to come. Brothers and sisters, you have only begun to taste what God will do in you by his Holy Spirit. You only have the smallest of hints of how God will and has promised to plan to work in you in the life to come. That is a glorious hope. Nothing can change that. And now if you'll allow me one more uh, question to ask why. Why is it that we have this inheritance Why does God seal us with the Spirit? Why does he preserve us to the end? Why is he going to seal us through the day of judgment? The answer is at the end of verse 14. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, question number one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, why does God give you an inheritance? Why does he indwell you by his spirit? Why does he work up that love for God and neighbor within you? Why does he strengthen it through, through faith and belief and the hearing of the word preached? Why does he lay up an inheritance for you? He does it all, not for you, but for his own glory, that you may look upon the God who does this for you, and you may give him praise.